Scattered protests continue to sputter, and there are new reports of skirmishes and violence in the wake of this weekend's massive military assault. By an estimated 30,000 Chinese troops ended at Tiananmen Square in the heart of Beijing. The troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. They just killed another one in the square. So, where were you? Uh, you mean when they came in? Yeah, yeah. I would have been close to where the Beijing Hotel was, but on the other side of the street, so that corner of the square. Zhou Fangshua and I were both in Tiananmen Square in June 1989. That's when the Chinese government sent in tanks to end weeks of student protests. Oh, yeah, you know, that's, that's a, a very important place, because that's... A lot of it, uh, things happen after the massacre. And that's where the tanks come in and out. Uh, many people died there. Joe was a physics major at Tsinghua University back then. And he was a member of the standing committee of the Beijing Students' Autonomous Union. That was the student group that led the 1989 protest. They managed to organize tens of thousands of young people across the country. They wanted more political reform and then free speech in China. We all know what happened after that. And were you already on your way out when the tanks came, or did the tanks uh, hasten your exit? Definitely, they hastened our exit. Uh, we, we was the last group to leave, and I was the last one uh, among the Tsinghua students. All of this was before the internet or email or social media. And the way demonstrators communicated back then was almost quaint. They used landline telephones. And, Joe reminds me, there was this other thing. When we were leaving, we had a debate of whether we should carry the copy machine. It was actually a mimeograph machine. Remember those? You'd scratch something out on a kind of carbon paper, attach it to a drum, ink it up, and then make lots of copies by turning a handle. You know, there they have, we have like the printer that makes flyers. Uh, I believe we carried it back. Mimeograph machines were about the size of one of today's desktop printers, and they were just as heavy. But that's all the students had in 1989. And they used them to print rice paper flyers with the latest news from the protests. I have one of these flyers. You, you still have one? I have one. I, 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 it's in a frame in my office. Now I took it down from the wall to show Joe. And I don't know if you can see. The paper is yellowed with handwritten Chinese characters on it. And it was the first three demands. Excellent. Beautiful. Yeah, these are pressures today. Chinese leaders eventually arrested Joe. He spent a year in jail and fled the country after he was released. He lives in the U.S. now. Fast forward to last year's COVID protests. They were broadcast almost live on our phones and our social media feeds all over television. That's how the world learned about a protester who unfurled banners on a highway overpass in Beijing. The banners denounced Chinese leader Xi Jinping. As a video of his protest started making the rounds on social media, China's censors immediately scrubbed it from the internet. A short time later, people were using things like Apple's airdrop feature to do an end run around the censors. As a result, someone was arrested. Chat groups began to amplify the video even more, 
and then helpfully offered step-by-step instructions on how to set up a virtual private network, which, it turns out, is another way Chinese citizens were able to get around censors. Mourners in Shanghai got even more creative. They began holding up single sheets of white paper. How could the police arrest them for just standing there holding a piece of paper? One image that went viral showed just a photograph of a man holding a sign. It read, you know what I want to say. Everywhere, every step is control. They control everything. Uh, The people have to come up with creative ways to bypass it. Tiananmen's rice paper flyers with a more modern twist. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, we look at what Chinese COVID demonstrations reveal about Beijing's efforts to quell internal dissent. Today's interconnected world has forced China to wage a very different fight, in ways you might expect, and some you may not. People shouldn't see this system as invulnerable or absolute. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Last November, a fire broke out in the upper floors of a high-rise apartment complex in Urumqi. Urumqi is the capital of Xinjiang province. It's in the far northwestern part of China, sort of where Seattle would be in the United States. Almost immediately, videos of the blaze popped up on Chinese social media sites like WeChat and Douyin. At least 10 people perished, and they were all members of China's Uyghur minority. And that news of the fire might have stayed in Xinjiang were it not for one thing, the stories that filtered out about why the Xinjiang residents couldn't escape the blaze. Here's what one family told CNN. They could not escape because the fire escape was blocked, and the fire escape to the roof of the building was also locked. Locked doors were a feature of President Xi Jinping's zero-COVID policy. In order to keep COVID cases in China to as close to zero as possible, He ordered mass testing, quarantines, and lockdowns. Anyone who tested positive for COVID, or even had neighbors who tested positive, were often physically locked inside their own buildings. Social media was filled with videos of authorities actually welding doors shut. Which could explain why the fire became such an inflection point. The people's patience had run out, so they took to the streets. Contrary to popular belief, Chinese leaders actually allow protests to happen, even in Xinjiang. 
as long as they stay local. You'll see large worker strikes, protests in China regularly where that are usually coalesce around an issue specifically where they don't blame the leadership. Robert Potter is the co-founder of Internet 2.0, a threat intelligence company. He's based in Australia and has been a longtime China watcher. The traditional narrative is that, you know, if Beijing knew they'd never let this happen, it's sort of the narrative they take locally. And if protesters stick to that, they're generally allowed to protest quite a bit. The central government sees local protests as a way for people to let off steam. The citizens have grievances, the government fixes whatever it is, and then life goes on. But the Xinjiang protests weren't really about a local issue. They were about Xi Jinping's restrictive COVID policies. And the lockdowns that had made it hard for people to escape that burning building were something that just about everyone in China had experienced in one way or another. So what might have been otherwise a local protest went national. Just days later, in a trendy part of Shanghai's French concession neighborhood, people began to gather spontaneously. They were holding lighted candles. To commemorate the victims who just burned alive during the tragedy and this fire in Urumqi. This is Rehana Sat. She's from Urumqi, and she saw what happened in Shanghai. She said the mourners gathered on a particular street, one that was seen as a symbol of the disaster, a street in Shanghai called Urumqi Road. They lay flowers, sang songs, and offered the occasional shout against Xi Jinping's lockdowns. Xi Jinping! But here's the crazy thing. The next morning, when people returned to Urumqi Road to continue their vigil, something was missing. Any sign that read Urumqi Road had disappeared. It's like little things that could unite people, little things that the government sees as danger or threat to their power must be eliminated. One day your language, one day could be a road sign, can become a threat to a very fragile and insecure government. When we come back, the Chinese government rips a page from a new playbook to respond to protests. And what they've done is traded tanks for tech. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. China's censorship machine is considered one of the most sophisticated in the world. Its algorithms and armies of human censors hunt down and delete countless posts on China's internet every day. The Chinese government, they don't give movements a chance to dig in. They don't like protest movements to build momentum. So they're very much into early intervention. And that intervention, Robert Potter of Internet 2.0 said, went into overdrive after the Xinjiang fire. As thousands of people posted videos of demonstrations, Chinese censors were overwhelmed. It turns out that thousands of videos from a variety of angles were much harder for censoring algorithms to identify than a single video shared a million times, which is why so much information on the demonstrations made it to the outside world. 
it is a patchwork of systems set up individually that primarily act at their best at the local level. People shouldn't see this system as invulnerable or absolute and a guarantee against successful protest and policy change in China. But it also gives protesters a myriad way to slip through in ways that can't be caught. Sometimes it was just simple things that fooled the censors. Flip demonstration videos on their side, and the algorithm can't make heads or tails of what it is. Send a recorded video of videos. That confuses it too. The Chinese leadership watched helplessly as literally thousands of videos were posted on Twitter and Instagram, and China couldn't control them. So they pulled another weapon out of their digital arsenal, something called spam bots. Think of it as an army of zombie computers that inject irritating content into a feed to kind of change the subject. They hijack the conversation about the protests in China and drown it out with distracting content, not necessarily an alternative narrative, but just a major distraction. This is Charity Wright. She's a senior China analyst at Recorded Future. And she was watching all these bots insert themselves into conversations. One minute, you'd think you were going to get the latest from the protests in, say, Chengdu, and then your feed would suddenly fill up with a bunch of ads for escort services or pornography. Pictures of young Asian women with messages in the Chinese language. They were using hashtags. We call it hashtag hijacking, using hashtags of city names in China where the protests were breaking out, which then inserted that post into the conversation. So in other words, someone would type hashtag Wuhan COVID protests, and instead of information about the demonstrations, they'd get a solicitation for sex. The hope was they'd get so much junk in their feed, they'd give up trying to find the latest news on the ground. The primary objective, we believe, of this campaign was to drown out conversation on platforms where they don't have control. Full disclosure, click here as part of Recorded Future News which is an editorially independent arm of Recorded Future. And while all the censorship and spam bots were working in full view, Robert Prouder said something else was burbling beneath the surface, China's all-seeing surveillance system, a network of cameras, facial recognition software, and tracking apps that in recent days have helped authorities start to round up people who took part in the protests. And in some cities like Beijing, obviously, they're much more sophisticated than they are in, other, in, in, in further out cities. The surveillance system was perfected in Xinjiang, where the fire that started all these protests happened back in November. Xinjiang, of all the places, is the place where the latest and the best usually shows up first. And what shows up in Xinjiang usually proliferates eastward across the country. It gives them the ability to be very effective. Like now they're checking people's phones. Remember Rehan Asat, who talked about the missing street signs in Shanghai? She'd seen the surveillance operation at work in Xinjiang years ago when Chinese authorities picked up and detained her brother, Ekpar. He was a tech entrepreneur and was detained in 2016. He was eventually sentenced to 15 years in prison on suspicion of inciting ethnic hatred. Rehan said it came as a complete surprise. Uh, you know, you could be just like minding your own business, walking down the street, and a police officer would come to you just to make sure you were not one of the participants in the protest. Kel Jersin and three of her friends attended one of those candlelight vigils for the people in the Urumqi fire. It was one of countless demonstrations that popped up in dozens of cities across China 
including Beijing, where Cao lives. She's an editor there. Last month, one of her videos surfaced on the internet. If you're watching this video, she says, I've been taken away, like my other friends. The camera has a close-up of Cao's face, and she has shoulder-length hair and bangs, and looks younger than 26. She said she and her friends had protested peacefully. Now they're thought to be among the first people to have been arrested for taking part in the protests in Beijing. We respected public order and didn't have any conflict with police, she says. So why do you have to secretly take us away? Human rights organizations say that the police asked them about their book club. Apparently, they'd read a lot of feminist works, which Chinese authorities see as bad because they think it smacks of foreign influence. And reportedly, Cao was asked about her use of the messaging platform Telegram, which is blocked in China. It's unclear what will happen to Cao and her friends. Journalists and human rights organizations have been trying to publicize their cases. But what these latest detentions make clear is that China isn't turning to tanks to quell protests anymore. They're having technology do so instead. This is Click Here. As Chinese authorities search for citizens who took part in last year's COVID protests, they're turning to facial recognition software. For years, the government has been hanging millions of cameras on street corners and at the entrances of buildings, so they can collect images of local residents. Then they run them through powerful software programs to recognize them. What's a Chinese protester to do? As Clickhear's Will Jarvis reports, they might just need to put on a sweater. Okay, so we are looking at um, colorful sweater. We see here 13 different colors. Um, this is Raquel Dodero. She's the CEO of an Italian fashion company called Capable. They make sweaters that look like something you'd see on the Cosby show, all colorful swirls and crazy textures. She's showing me one. It's part of the company's manifesto collection. So we see black and white and um, red and blue and uh, green, <laughs> yellow. <laughs> this isn't your grandmother's knitwear. The designs are part of an adversarial AI experiment. They're trying to create a blind spot in those all-seeing facial recognition systems that have been installed in public spaces around the world. Facial recognition technology has many problematics, and sometimes I don't even see the camera, so I cannot even know if my data is taken or not. AI learns by processing millions of images so it can recognize them in the real world. And what Didero has created with her sweater is a kind of AI head fake. She changes patterns in a very specific way to make the AI misidentify things. The idea got its start when she was a student at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. She was chatting about facial recognition cameras. And then a friend of mine, an engineer from India, he knew how to make these adversarial patches, uh, digital images. Adversarial patches. Think of them as patterns designed to intentionally trick AI programs. The idea is to take those images that the AI may have trouble identifying and hide them in plain sight to sow confusion. So Dodero thought, what if you put these patches on clothes? 
So uh, we are trying to reproducing animals. So we have... The sweater she's showing off has hidden animals all over it. It's a colorful collage. Other pieces in the collection feature animals like giraffes and elephants, zebras. Or dogs, or like beagles, the, the beagles dog. To the human eye, it just looks like a funky sweater. But the AI software is seeing something else. All these shapes together are sending wrong information to the algorithm that is not able to focus in on our face. There's actually a very famous adversarial patch story. It happened a couple years ago. It involved a stop sign and a UC Berkeley professor named Don Song. She and her students wanted to see how adversaries could use physical objects to mislead AI. So in our work, what we tried is there's a stop sign, and we calculated how to put certain marks on the physical stop sign. Physical marks, like pieces of black and white tape, strategically placed on the sign. So if a car using AI to drive itself zooms down the street... Instead of recognizing this as a stop sign, it will misclassify it as, for example, a speed limit sign of 45 miles per hour. Instead of stopping, it sped up. Song did all this because she was worried that adversaries would try to wreak havoc on driverless technologies. Her work is about making AI more resilient. Didero has a different goal. She's worried about privacy. I'm giving the possibility to people not to be recognized every moment by this technology. I'm trying to give the right to privacy to these people. So as the market for AI and facial recognition booms, so does an industry focused on subverting it. I'm Will Jarvis, and this is Click Here. Here are some of the week's top cyber and intelligence stories. Microsoft's Digital Threat Analysis Center says an Iran-backed hacking group targeted French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo. The group calls itself Holy Souls, and it said that in January it had stolen the personal information of some 200,000 Charlie Hebdo subscribers after hacking into one of the magazine's databases. The group allegedly published the stolen data on YouTube and several hacker forums. Microsoft said the attack was in response to the magazine's decision to hold a cartoon contest, asking for drawings ridiculing Iran's supreme leader. The magazine is known for courting controversy. It has rather famously held similar contests, encouraging people to draw the Prophet Muhammad. And that led to an attack on its offices by ISIS fighters in 2015. The Republican chairman of two House committees are seeking information from the Department of Energy about a hacking attempt on the Brookhaven, Argonne, and Lawrence Livermore Labs last year. It's unclear whether the intrusions were actually successful, but Oversight Chairman James Comer and Science Chairman Frank Lucas wrote Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm seeking more detail. Reportedly, the hackers used fake login pages to attempt to collect credentials from scientists. All three facilities perform high-level research associated with the U.S. weapons program. And finally, a pro-Russian hacking group that calls itself Passion launched a new tool aimed at making distributed denial-of-service or DDoS attacks against Ukraine and allies that much simpler. According to a report by Radware, Passion is renting out its army of zombie computers, and pro-Russian hacktivist collectives like Killnet and Anonymous Russia 
have availed themselves of the service. Radware researchers say that for about $120 a month, Passion allows customers to mix and match. They can choose from 10 different attack vectors and determine the duration and intensity of the bogus internet traffic. The ability to customize makes it that much harder to detect and mitigate the attacks. Click Here is a production of Recorded Future News. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, your host, writer, and executive producer. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer and helps with our writing. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors, Darren Ancrum is our fact-checker, and Ben Levingston composes our theme. We use other music from Blue Dot Sessions. Gabriella Glick is our intern. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, and connect with us by email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com or on our website at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.